This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm going to summarize a huge amount of stuff in a couple of sentences here so that we can tell the rest of this story. Uh, Over time, Tommy Thompson puts together a crew. They put together a very complex process. And in 1988, they start to recover the SS Central America and a lot of gold. That's what I meant by they hit the lottery with all of this. And I don't want to ruin the scientific part of it because that looks like it's going to be the focus of the specials that are coming out. Um, I want to get to the legal part. So I'm collapsing all of this into just a few sentences so that people don't have to hear me talk about like the inventions and the very scientific process that goes in there. We're going to mention some of that along the way in the next episodes as we wrap this up. But the bottom line is they end up recovering in the late 80s a huge amount of gold from the SS Central America and from the areas around it. Okay, so we started off with uh, deep gold, and we've now sort of covered how the gold rush becomes this ship of gold, and then... Many years later, this group is formed, and they go down, and they recover this gold. So that's like where we're at in the story here, uh, to recap what the last couple of episodes have been about. Now, this is where things kind of take a turn. Now, we're not to present day yet, and I'll tell you, the sources on this, although like the book itself, Ship of Gold, has been a huge source for this, uh, Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea by Gary Kinder. And we had wanted to have Gary Kinder on and talk to him. But because there's going to be this series put out by the BBC and Nat Geo in you know short order, he can't talk to us until after the series is out, uh, which apparently he's the only one listening to their lawyers in this, this whole thing. Um, but where we pick up now, and, and I have the hardest time finding kind of a succinct way to put all this together from – the perspective of what happened after they recover all this gold. But I found this Columbus Monthly article. Now, if you find this online at the Columbus Monthly, it's written by a staff writer. So I'm not trying to not give credit to what was going on. But this comes from an article that says it's published on February 5th, 2014. But then it says it was updated on June 1st of 2009. So take that for what you will. Because I don't know how you go back in time. I think it's just some point they switched over from their paper to their digital, and that's what happened. Um, but it's actually an article from June of 1999, and it's actually recounting events from 1989 to 1999. So that's where we're at in time. Does that make sense, Meg? Yes. So we're going to start with some of what this article is saying, and then we're going to go with sort of where this lands Mr. Tommy Thompson. For one bright, crisp October moment in 1989, Tommy Thompson had it all. He was a genius, a hero. Soon he'd be a millionaire many times over. To the scores of wealthy Columbus investors who stood on that pier in Virginia, watching his ship, no, their ship, come in, Tommy Thompson was a god. I still get chills just thinking about it, says one man who was there. Here was a guy who beat the odds, just thumbed his nose when everybody told him he couldn't do what he said he was going to do. He went, he pulled it off, he made history, really. And we all got to be a part of that. I mean, there were people practically crying on that dock. They were so happy for Tommy. 
They were happy for themselves, too, no doubt, as they watched the parade of crew members lugging heavy ammunition cans from the ship through a cordon of armed guards to two Brinks trucks parked alongside the dock. Inside those drab utilitarian cans were thousands of gold coins, gold bars, and gold ingots, all recovered by Tommy Thompson and his Columbus America Discovery Group from the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. All right, I got to say right there for a second, that's exciting. That's like cinematic, right? I agree, yeah. So you've got this guy, and he's he's sort of like a savant, sort of a, a genius in what he did here. But he he's riding on the back of a lot of money and a lot of investors at this point to to make this come true. And this is like his ticker tape parade. Do you know what I mean when I say ticker tape? I don't know yeah. if that's going to come. This gold has been untouchable since 1857 when the Central America sank. It's 160 miles off of the coast of North Carolina, off of Cape Hatteras. And this boat basically doesn't exist anymore. It has sort of fallen apart around its innards, for lack of a a better expression. But the gold's just sitting there. It's been waiting for Tommy Thompson to come and get it. So his purported tenacity and his brilliance with this plan, which the plan itself is not just Tommy Thompson. He recruited all of these people, and he basically made a production out of all of this that the movie part of the production was to bring the gold back. And this production of him having recovered all this gold is about to turn into a nightmare, and he doesn't even know it. Tommy Thompson is the person that pulls all of this out. At the time when he does this, he's 37 years old. He's a former engineer. He is a, for lack of a better word, a, a nerd for life. He had been obsessed with this boat. He had been obsessed with that gold since the 70s when he was in college up in Ohio. And now he's had 160, 170 people put together somewhere between 12 and $13 million. And he has done for them exactly what he said he was going to do. Well, one thing I would just add to that is I, I agree that that's what was happening, but it was more important to Tommy to utilize technology in his own way to be able to achieve this right as a, because he wasn't really like a treasure seeker right he did target a boat that was known to have gold on it because he knew it was going to be a, an expensive endeavor right but a lot of his focus was on his ability as sort of a scientific engineer to uh, put together the tools that were necessary to do this uh, expedition yeah this is as much about the innovation But you're right. The reason for the gold is like that's the payoff that gets him the, you know, the multiple millions of dollars to build and play with his toys. Right. And um, he at the time, uh, I would say that uh, his brain held probably some of the only proprietary information um, that would allow for that. And uh, he had, because he was so smart, you know, a lot of times people that are really smart, um, they have difficulties in other areas, right? So super genius as far as like constructing something that can go to the bottom of the ocean and retrieve things from a shipwreck, but uh, not entirely sure what to do with that and how to handle it, right? Absolutely. And I, I think that people around him, I think they're kind of split into two groups, maybe three. But like one group sees it for genius, goes along with it, does everything they can to support it. The other group doesn't care for what's happening, but they're there and they're invested in it. 
And then there's maybe a group in the middle that's kind of like, I'm not sure what's going on right now. But he proves himself with Nemo, with, I mean, so many things along the way could have gone wrong here. And we never have this moment. Right. And so it was a huge accomplishment. This is something that like little children's dreams are made of, right? Oh, absolutely. And you've got, you know, um, a guy who, after lots of experiences in life, from educational to real world experiences, he's, you know, put together this project that has just, you know, been this huge undertaking. Uh, and, you know, he convinced, he had to do so much convincing and so much um, smoozing to, you know, even get to the point where he was at. And, you know, there was always this chance that like, it, it wasn't going to pan out. Right. But then you have this moment where all of a sudden it is. It, it literally, and, and it's once in a lifetime that something like this is going to happen. Uh, the way they describe it in the article is they say as these like Brinks trucks, these armored cars full of gold are rolling away from this warehouse that's been under armed guard somewhere in Virginia. You got Tommy Thompson, his crew, the families, all the investors, and then a few media folks that are like coming in to have this like celebratory buffet dinner. Gary Kinder's quote for this, who his book is instrumental in us being able to do this and recounting all of this. I, I did enjoy the book, but I will also say that like it is heavily dramatized in so many regards. But the reason that that, that ship of gold in the deep blue sea is so important is it captured so many different things uh, about this entire journey. Now, he interviewed Fred Dodderman, and Fred Dodderman was an accountant who joined with a bunch of partners from his firm and Deloitte and Touche or Deloitte and touch is the name of that firm today. uh, Today, I think they invested more than $2 million in all of this. And here's what he told Gary Kinder. This is Fred Dodderman talking to Gary Kinder. He says during a lifetime, you don't have many things like this happening. This is a happening. And he, he said that October day, this was like a happening. Everything came together perfectly. And so for the next 10 years, you can only describe what happens in Tommy Thompson's life as a war. And the way they break this down is pretty interesting. It says almost a decade has passed since that one perfect day in Virginia. For Tommy Thompson, his investors, and everyone else connected to the Columbus America Discovery Group, those 10 years should have been years of triumph, acclaim, and wealth. They'd already done the impossible. Everything else, recovering the rest of the Central America's treasure, perfecting their title, selling the gold, was just going to be busy work. In the early days, estimates of the total value of Thompson's find on the world's gold-collecting markets ranged as high as $500 million. His investors, all people of considerable wealth, even before they put money into the Central America Recovery Project, hardly needed calculators to do the math. Suddenly, the $250,000 invested by Don Fanta, then president of the Ohio company, was looking like $8 million or so. Car dealer Len Imke's $50,000 stake might be worth $1.5 million. Dispatch printing company chairman J.W. Wolf had risked $323,750. His payoff could be $10 million. Now, Tommy Thompson himself had invested no cash. He didn't have any cash to invest. But he had sunk years of his life and all of his considerable talents and innovations like we were just describing with the technology into this project. As the sole general partner in Recovery Limited, this is the entity that initially set up to finance the Columbus America Discovery Group. Thompson's share was to be about 34% of the treasure, although he'd later assert in court documents that he'd given away half his interest to key staff members. Even with a 17% share, Thompson stood to wind up with $60 million or more. 
So the devil is in the details, and when big money is at stake, the smallest details become formidable obstacles. Even as Tommy Thompson celebrated on the Norfolk Water Fund, the first deeds of a decade of frustration and acrimony were being sown in a federal courthouse across town. So he's celebrating, and he has no idea what's, what's happening. But the day that the gold lands, 37 insurance companies file a lawsuit and they say that they are entitled to the Central America's treasure because they or their predecessor companies had paid insurance claims after the ship sank. And that Tommy Thompson and his investors are entitled to zero. This is one of the wildest things I could possibly imagine in that an insurance company this many years later is seeking to recoup paid insurance claims from companies they bought along the way over the last 130 years at the time. I know it's more right. than that now, but it'd be 130 years. Yeah. About that. I mean, it was a long time. I, um, and I, I feel like this, you know, where we're going to end up with this story, I feel like this part of it um, kind of fades into the background. But this is like a monumental moment, okay? You've got dreams coming to fruition. Uh, as far as uh, Tommy is concerned, this is his life's work up to this point. And he has been successful, right? Which is, I mean, it's it's an event, you know, like was said, this is something that like, you know, he only could have dreamed of, but he, he took the initiative and the time and he, he did all of it. And so the very day, the, the gold that they have collected is coming in, you've got corporations, right? Insurance companies. This is nothing but literally corporate America coming down on him with their hands out. Okay, and and it's crushing. Because yeah. um I don't know about you. I I didn't know anything about this story. It like for me it's kind of backwards because we heard I heard the end first and then I went back to kind of get an idea of what all was happening here and I felt like I got the wind kicked out of me when I read that 37 insurance companies immediately filed claims to that gold. They had done absolutely nothing. Okay. <laughs> and Tommy had poured, you know, blood, sweat, and tears into this huge undertaking. Right. Yeah. And all these other people that he had, you know, he had, begged and borrowed from they they had invested in him because for the most part you if you were to read the entire story you would realize that like most of the investors they invested in Tommy they didn't invest in like this idea um of you know getting rich quick from a a ship recovery uh they invested in his ability to present sort of, and they never really give the pitch. You can't really find it because I mean, a lot of it was proprietary and a lot of them had to sign non-disclosures. Right. And so we don't know what the pitch was, but the sort of apex of all these investors is the fact that like they believed in this guy. Right. Absolutely. Even though the, it was like a far fetched, like dream type scenario. He was able to uh, kind of, you know, give himself enough credence that they were like, well, I mean, it sounds crazy, but I'm in, right? That and, and we hear these stories of these investors kind of over and over again because he was so, like, he was his own best advocate in trying to get to where he ends up being. And I can only imagine um, how much, like, the very moment he realizes he's served with the paperwork where all these insurance companies are there. I, I can just see them, you know, guys in suits standing there with their briefcase and their handout, right? Like, give me the money. You did all this work. 
Yeah, and just like looking at him, the like his face in all of the pictures since then has the look of a man who would just like have, pardon the pun, the wind taken out of his sails by that happening. Right. He was, um, he was, I would say that that, like the roller coaster of that day itself, being on top of the world just to be kicked down, um, I feel like that in a lot of ways completely defeated him. Uh, in a soul-crushing way that, you know, most of us, I don't think, will ever even experience. Yeah, uh, I would uh, I would definitely agree with you. I w- it just, it, there is a very small portion of the population, and I mean minuscule, that has experienced the roller coaster into the ocean that Tommy Thompson has been on. Um, now it's there. There's a, okay. So by the time it's over said and done, there's actually 39 companies that are suing 37 file that day, 39 insurance companies total, a couple more people jump on the bandwagon there. And I just want to highlight a couple of quick things of what's going on in terms of like what happens between that day in 1989 and 1996. And then you and I are going to actually have to, like, we may not be able to do it all in one episode because there's some really interesting rulings in here that are probably wrong. And they have what I would describe as catastrophic effects on this whole situation. Uh, Right. And it's very complicated because we're talking about maritime law. But um, I imagine right off the bat, I don't know what you would think of just sort of this uh, presentation of he got his uh, he found his shipwreck. He made a retrieval and plans for additional retrievals. And then he was uh, sued by 37 insurance companies one day. A couple more jump on it ends up being 39 insurance companies. I immediately think to myself, how many millions of dollars is it going to take to get this resolved? Right? Yeah, that's like that's all I can picture in my head is like, how do you even answer 37 complaints without basically eating up whatever you just made? Right. And so and it's all kind of, so no matter what. Right. He this has to be dealt with. Right. What regardless of how ridiculous uh, the assertions made by these companies are, I mean, because to me, like just, you know, kind of absorbing it as I'm learning about it, I find it to be just utterly ridiculous. Right? It's overwhelming. And to think like, OK, so I did this great thing. I'm on top of the world. And now, oh, my goodness, because I imagine he wasn't super familiar with his position at this point. Right. Like, well, where do I stand? I don't know that it ever came up and at any point in time before, uh, you know, they come back with the gold that they've recovered. I don't know that it was ever a thought that like, oh, we're going to have all these claims against it. And what if in this crazy maritime law situation, what if I actually, you know, don't get it? What if these claims have merit and they're awarded it? Well, you're talking about a guy who just put blood, sweat, and tears into a project because he had no money. and But he will ultimately be responsible for legally defending himself, Right. Yeah, not only so he as so he's the sole person here being attacked. Now his investors are behind him in line, but ultimately he's being sued in a way that his investors are not going to be sued. It's just going to be him. It's him and how did they break it up? Uh, the name Recovery of the, Limited, Recovery and Limited, Columbus, Columbus America Discovery Group, and Recovery Limited. Right, and so. Um, the way that all those corporations are set up, for the most part, they're set up as companies um, for uh, logical sort of ways that the this particular business is being handled because you've got a lot of aspects happening, right? Right. Um, but for the most part, I mean, it's Tommy, right? Yeah, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's not all the investors that are, like there's a hundred and some people 167 people i think is one of the numbers of they've invested in this in a way that 
they invested in a company, they're not responsible for the company's legal defense. Does Correct. that make sense? Right. So yes, top, absolutely. So all those guys in suits with briefcases, when they come calling, it's just Tommy standing there. Right. Right. And no matter what, no matter, even if he said, you know, which of course he couldn't do at that point, because once you have investors, you have to take their interest into account when you make decisions. But even if he was like, I give up, I don't want to do this anymore, right? He's still facing the consequences of this situation. To me, it almost seems like there's no other way to interpret that happening except like I'm being punished. He is being punished. Yeah, I agree. And that is the interpretation he has to take. Uh, There's a cool quote in Ocean and Coastal Law Journal. They did a massive write-up on those. Uh, Volume 21, uh, Numbers 1 and 2, which is from 2015, 2016. They published in uh, January 2016, uh, a lawyer named Chris Ryan writes up this story. And he has a, a pretty extensive timeline in there. But he has a quote in there that stood out to me. And I'm going to talk about it here for a second because it's it's like the it's like the very clear what could have happened in basically a paragraph. So this is uh, from a life insurance consultant who was out of Columbus, Ohio. His name is uh, Don uh, Garlikoff. And I think that I'm pretty sure Don is still alive today. I think he's like 80 today. Um, and he still talks about this case from time to time. But he said that the that what went wrong was very, very simple. He uh, And I don't know if this part is his quote, but I'm going to use it. And it's sort of attributed to him. The story of Tommy Thompson and the ship of gold is an odyssey, a mystery, a tragedy. It's a tale of rousing triumph and scientific breakthroughs of greed and twisted lies. It's a story that when it ends, as all stories do, will leave a legacy for better or for worse. But then that's in here as a quote. It's not directly attributed anywhere because this is more like a giant wall journal than it is anything else. And it's, to be honest with you, it's coastal law. And I don't think a lot of people get deep into coastal law. So, because that includes maritime law and it includes like all of the things related to like how far offshore can you do a thing before you're, you know, in international waters uh, and more complex issues. But here's what Don says He brought up three tons of gold when he should have brought up three pounds. He, he should have brought up three pounds because there's an axiom out there for me. If they think they can steal it from you, they will try. Now, the, Chris Ryan says that Don is being hyperbolic, but only slightly. If Thompson had waited to recover the majority of the treasure until after the dust had settled and rulings had been made over rights, there would have been less to lose. Things might have shaken out differently for Tommy and for the investors. And there's a lot to be said for the idea that less is more here. Because you're going to find out as we go along that the situation Tommy ends up in Um, with some of these different holdings are, one, unprecedented because the whole situation is unprecedented. This much gold has not been brought up. And the only other shipwreck you will find in our time that is of this level of significance, in my opinion, is the Titanic. The Central America is second only to the Titanic. And I actually think the Titanic might be second to the Central America. Well, well, it's it's definitely second in controversy. Um, I don't think that, and you can correct me if you know, I don't know, but my understanding is like the Titanic was steel, which made it like, I think the Titanic was actually uh, discovered a little before the Central American, but I could be wrong. Uh, I don't know that there was a stockpile of gold on the Titanic that was being transported like the Central America had. Correct. You are correct. Um, and it, so the Titanic sank in April of 1912, and it was discovered in September of 1985. So it is just ahead of uh, the discovery of the Central America. There were a lot of expeditions to find the Titanic. And what's that is more of a historical nature, but it is no less of a feat of like investment wonder in order for 
uh, like the different people who were involved in, in the discovery of the Titanic. Cause there, there was a lot of failure related to discovering the Titanic. Right. And uh, one of the things that I, I don't know where the information came from, but um, Tommy Thompson initially, he wasn't interested in the Titanic because of the material it was made out of. Um, and whatever he had in his mind that he was going to do with the, whatever he ultimately decided he was going to retrieve. Right. Uh, right. And, and it had to do with the fact that like, it would be too cumbersome to get through the steel that the Titanic was made of. Right. Yes. Uh, because the central America was wood. It was largely wood. I mean, there were other components, but what I was thinking to myself when I was hearing about this, because the Titanic has its own, like claim to fame in, you know, the mid nineties when there was a movie made, made and like, that's how a lot of people know about the Titanic. And sure. I would say that, um, you know, the central America lacks that sort of publicity for sure. Okay. Well, actually the central America is, it's really funded because of the Titanic because Tommy's money starts coming in in 1985. And that's when the Titanic is discovered. So you're right. They're investing in Tommy. And one of the things that is making them invest in Tommy is because when the Titanic is, is found, there's a lead up to it being found where it is in the news for a solid year. It's a right. huge deal. Right. And so something funny that I, I realized was he had this logistical concern about not being able to get through the whole of the ship it, like in the event he had picked the Titanic to um, – because – like in his mind, planning this project, like he's going through options, right? right? What are the shipwrecks I could possibly look at? He said, you know, the Titanic's made of steel. It's not going to be something I can get through with my particular way of scavenging a shipwreck. And I thought to myself, well, it didn't take anything but an iceberg to sink it. So, well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's what that's, I, that's that what is I'm very thinking. true. Like, the whole time I'm going, well, that that's some logic there. And of course he's, he's got a, you know, he, I'm sure I, I don't understand anything in his mind, right? I'm just, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist, but like to listen to him sort of explain some of the stuff. It, it was just funny to me that that's where he went with that. Cause I, if I had been looking at that situation, I would have been like, well, it went down because of an iceberg, so let's get to it. But he had, because he didn't have the resources, he had to have something to offer back. But you think, so he was definitely studying the Titanic, and I've seen references to that in, so he, so Tommy Thompson has his book, and then there's Gary's book. And then I have stacks and stacks and stacks of like complicated articles and narratives about the story. And I'm shocked that like more people don't know about the whole thing. Um, like, well, I think the controversy was so confusing. <laughs> well, it was confusing. It, it still is confusing. Um, but it was so distressing even like it was just such a such a terrible sort of letdown at, in the in the immediate aftermath right it was it was just such a crazy thing that was happening and i do think like it was completely motivated by the money that was involved the speculation of the money um actually the money that was being transported was well documented right because it yes. was literally being taken from like uh, where it was recovered from the gold rush and it was going to New York to be, you know, put in reserve or put in, uh, stamped into coins or whatever they were going to do with it. It had uh, purposes, official purposes, right? Um, you, mean, because, you mean in terms of like the gold, not, so let's not say the word money there. The gold oh, that's being recovered. I'm sorry. Yes. The gold that's being recovered. It was going like it was very specifically documented, right? Yeah. Uh, it was insured, right? Yes. And it was going from one point to another. And like the ship, the Central America was the transport for it. Now, it, what's interesting is when all this occurred, I don't know, I don't really know the dynamics 
or the consideration that was put into place. But like we come to find out that, you know, that wasn't the only gold at stake, right? Right. And I don't know like why on earth anyone would have a claim for that when they were trying to sort it out and be like, well, you get nothing because we've insured all this, right? You mean in terms of like the individuals that had gold on board? Well, people that were leaving California on the Sonoma to get onto the Central America and Panama, most of them were leaving from uh, being on a a gold rush expedition, right? Right. Some of, some of them were more successful than others. Uh, it was expensive to travel by ship like that. So most of the people on that were passengers on the ship, they had substantial gold with them personally, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, if you read really far into the story, like not all of it was declared, right? Because there was limits and stuff and people, it came out sort of before the ship went down. There was a lot of smuggling going on. Nobody cared about like the gold that they had when they were trying to get off of the sinking ship. And it was really a turnabout face because you've got these passengers who, you know, like you said, were smuggling things and they were like, anybody that wants it can have it. I just want to live. Right. And, um, it was a very, like, it's very telling in sort of what was captured and what you can kind of glean from the experiences that were documented from the ship sinking. But, you know, all of that, uh, the insurance company would have absolutely no claim to, I, I don't know, like, cause Tommy Thompson has never said like, well, I had, I still had hope for those, uh, you know, possibilities right yeah i think you know just facing all of this is it's not only daunting if you're somebody who basically is a genius in a couple of ways and maybe misses a lot of social cues in other ways this is a situation that couldn't get much worse because now suddenly you have insurance companies standing in front of you and insurance companies on their best day are not like the best entities to deal with but also they brought all their lawyers. So, and lawyers on their best day are not the best types of people to have to be interacting with. Cause you're usually not there. Like, unless it's a very small percentage of, of positive things that can happen, you're usually dealing with insurance companies and lawyers in terrible situations. So if you're this guy, like it's going to start to feel a little bit like this gold is cursed. And then I'm going to list off some events here that just make it feel more like that. Right. And I would say that when you quoted the um, insurance consultant saying that, like, he really should have just brought, like, you know, three pounds up instead of three tons or whatever the quote was, it yeah. kind of gives you an insight into sort of that the person who quoted that, their perspective on Tommy's innocence in this project. Yes. And, uh, and just for the record, that guy's in the insurance industry. Um, Don is. Right, but uh, I don't think he was involved in any of the claims or anything. No, no, no. He wasn't this kind of insurance person. He, I believe he was a life insurance consultant that did like portfolio life insurance and stuff. Right, mm, um, possibly, yeah. So here's what happens, like just in a quick list to sort of give you an idea of where we're headed with this. So first of all, the Columbus American Discovery Group, by the time this beautiful happening day occurs and they are unloading this gold, they have used up their investment money. Like the, the 12 to $13 million they had, they had borrowed is gone. In order to keep doing what they're doing, which at this point is the busy work that was described, where they're cataloging all of this, they're making sure it gets to the right places, they're making sure it gets sold and documented and everyone is taken care of, they have to borrow money to keep doing that. So their debts pretty quickly... Uh, get into the millions of dollars. By 1996, it was estimated they had borrowed around $50 million. Over the course of this time, they were planning on continuing recovery operations. Because in Tommy's estimate, there was somewhere between 10 and 20 tons of gold still around the, the SS Central America at the bottom of the Atlantic. But because the Columbus American Discovery Group is broke and not only broke, in debt for millions of dollars, Tommy is broke and in debt for millions of dollars. 
And then the worst possible thing that could happen, happened. So collectible gold coins and gold in, in general had been at a peak in 1988 and 1989 as this was all going on. In the early 1990s, that tanked. And when I say tanked, it completely fell through the floor. When that happens, the auction value of a lot of the gold that's being recovered from the Central America is drastically reduced. So you have this one moment that you're talking about, it's you know worth $500 million when it comes off the boat. And then you have a moment where you're looking at it and it's worth about a quarter of that or less. Right, which is a very interesting aspect of having this volatility in your potential return on an investment. And it's a volatility beyond just like typical risk assessment when you are investing in something, right? This is a volatility where like what you're going to exchange, what you're getting out, like the value of that is fluctuating. Absolutely. And that makes financial people just, I mean, it blows their mind. It does. And so then you have another aspect of problems in in Tommy's life. And that is when all of this is happening, you're not in the best position to maintain your relationships. And his wife is done with him. So over the course of the next several years, Tommy Thompson starts going through a terrible divorce. And not only is he going through a terrible divorce, he gets his ass kicked during this divorce in a very, very, very horrible way. And that is distracting him from the other terrible things involving lawyers in his life. He loses the divorce in a way that he has to give up a huge share of recovery limited to his now ex-wife. He had always been kind of a secretive and I would, I would kind of call him, call him introverted and I picture shy, but maybe that's not the right word. He had been sort of a suspicious and, and keep to himself kind of type. But now he's getting more suspicious and more paranoid and more isolated as this goes on and on. And he's having to explain to his investors that, like, he can't do anything to pay them back that original $13 million they've given him or any of the, you know, 40 to $50 million that he's borrowed in the meantime from different sources to keep – uh, the the group afloat, the Columbus American Discovery group afloat. And he can't explain any of it because it's all going to legal fees and it's all sort of a disaster. So at one point in 1998, one of the investor groups attempts to force Tommy out and someone else in to like oversee what's happening to get some answers in this ongoing battle. So Tommy fights back and he tells his investors that he has to be in charge of this. He has to be the central authority. And what has worked for this project to the point that the gold is recovered before the insurance companies sue the ever living life out of Tommy Thompson is that his persistence and his being a control freak to the point of like obsession that has just driven this project to recovering this, what is once called $500 million in gold. But the same thing starts to make it where he doesn't trust any of the advice he could have been getting during this time. So he keeps trying to go down this path that's become impossible between the divorce and all of the different court findings. And what he ends up doing is handicapping himself from the ability to put together around $40 million that he says he needs to go back to the Central America and to like capitalize on what's still there in terms of the gold on the bottom of the Atlantic. But Tommy Thompson screwed himself in all of this. Starting in 1990, 
a really dumb thing starts occurring. Tommy puts all of his lawyers in every situation in his life, including the divorce, in a position where they have to explain why Tommy doesn't show up at court. He doesn't show up for depositions in the court case. And while the successes of the Columbus America Discovery Group were huge when it first happened, it's a tiny little group of people. The truth that they weren't saying in the court documents is that it's really only Tommy. There are a couple of people that are given shares along the way that are key personnel. But, and I don't know about like what you think about this, Meg, but like I am totally down for like the talents these people have. Like some of these people are, are building and engineering parts of the technology that Tommy has designed. Some of them are excellent oceanographers and cartographers, but none of them have any idea what to do to market this $500 million in gold. Well, I agree with that a hundred percent. And part, well, part of the problem was, I think some of them might've had some ideas. It just didn't matter because I feel like that, like I said, that initial like sort of after the thrill of, you know, accomplishing his dream, what he faced when he literally got back on shore with all of the, you know, hands out from the insurance companies that scarred him in a way where it didn't matter who had what idea, right? He was literally frozen in the space of like, I don't want to make any moves. And this is my opinion, by the way, he hasn't said this. I feel like he was frozen in this place where he couldn't listen to anybody and he didn't want to make any moves because any move he made would alter everything. Right. And so he was using like what he could to sort of control uh, the narrative of the story that we have happening. Right. Um, But he didn't have, he didn't have the ability to delegate it to anybody, um, which is, hundred percent what should have happened. Like some, somebody else should have been involved in like, uh, the business management of the gold that was recovered. And like that never came to fruition for a variety of reasons. Like I was saying he was frozen, but he was so scarred that, I mean, and I wouldn't say that he was wrong in being paranoid. Right. But everybody wanted to get their hands on the treasure. Yeah. And it it really really damaged his trajectory as far as I'm concerned having looked back through the whole story and seen it kind of I mean it's not quite gone full circle because it's not over yet but this is that point where when you have a pile of gold that is just sort of sitting there now some of it's been uh you know some of it's been recovered a lot of it's still um in the ship that's at the bottom of the ocean and you know you've got the situation here i mean unless you're just going to be like divvying up the physical gold you don't have any money right you don't have any money to give back to the investors. You don't, he didn't have a plan to get any money to pay off his debts and then pay back the investors, right? Correct. And that was a huge like turnabout as well. You mentioned one earlier. So when this all starts out in the early 80s, you've got Tommy and this guy, Wayne Ashby Jr., who comes out of that same accounting firm. When they first start recruiting investors in, I think it's 83, 84, 85, And the ones who wrote out the first checks, like they didn't believe that they were ever going to see their money again back then. Tommy was making these presentations. And if you go back and like read what the investors say about him, when Tommy came in and, and presented things, it was amazing. And the backing of Wayne Ashby was a huge deal. So people trusted that Tommy's saying this. And Wayne is saying that, like, he's going to be keeping track of this. Everybody that was investing felt like it would be okay because Wayne would not screw around with any kind of investment deal. But while they thought they might get their money back, they knew that this whole we're going to recover this boat full of gold was a long shot. 
even after he'd found the ship, even when he's building the submarine to go down, none of the investors actually knew or were sure, or I guess the word would be believed, that he could actually get the gold. Uh, that's true. And I don't know if this is the right time or not, but I'm going to bring it up because this is a fantastic story. Like you couldn't even write a fiction story like this fantastic, I don't think, but it really happened. Right. And so one of the things that came up that it seems like I had gone through this portion of the story and this was not mentioned, um, but then I verified it now. And during the, uh, the point in the expedition process where they were uh, trying to find the Central America, they worked for 115 days uh, recovering things from a ship that ended up being like the Galaxy 2. Did you see that? Yep. And I thought to myself, like, wow, what a disappointment. And it does get skipped over a lot. And I wouldn't like want to focus on it too much. But I think part of the problem was like, as they were, um, so 115 days, that's a that's quite a while. That would have been an entire season for them, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's, so all the expenses being incurred, everything about that period of time uh, was a waste because it, ended up not being the right ship and there was nothing that really was worthwhile for them to get. Um, And it took sort of this brainstorm, I guess, by a couple of the guys that were working the expedition for them to finally like realize, oh, this isn't the right ship. Right. And then they finally did get on track. Right. But to me, that was a gigantic setback that happened sort of at the beginning where they had done all this work, spent all the money and resources that they were using. Cause you got to think big ship out on the ocean, crew of people, you know, all these expenses are coming into play. And regardless of, you know, what all is set up, like that's, that's money being spent for no yield, right? Nothing is coming back from this particular incident. Now, the first time I heard the story, that was not mentioned. I I don't know about you. It's rarely mentioned in print at all related to this story. Right. I was gonna say, you have to go back and verify it separately. Like once you realize it, it has occurred that th- there is something related to the wrong boat, you have to go back and verify. The t- like it's it's one of those things you blink and you miss it, and then you're like, wait a second, what? Right, but and it has some uh, pretty, you know, there were things that happen in the like when you hear that part of the story, they they add up to ultimately what ends up happening as they're finding the Central America. Um, but I find I found that to be very interesting. Um, because I didn't uh, initially know that. And I I didn't know where to really like insert it. And I know we're talking about the legal aspects after they had found it, but this is part of their journey in getting there. I think this is a good place to kind of wrap up. And uh, I wanted to kind of end this episode by saying this guy from 1995 to 2000, from what I can tell, he does not give a single interview to anyone in print talking about Tommy Thompson. He is that frozen in his world. And I I think that is the best way to describe. I haven't seen it described that way. This is my speculation on absorbing what in the mainstream narrative happened to this guy, plus uh, stuff that we are going to see is going to happen to him. I feel like he was literally just frozen and it had significant repercussions. Yes, it did. Can anybody tell what uh, Bob Evans is doing in his little lab there on the ship? Gold dust? He's panning for gold. This is Bob Evans' mind. He's sitting in his office one day. They had a little Victorian house in Columbus they had rented for an office. And uh, Bob was sitting there one day, and, and his mind started to wander, as it usually does. And, and uh, he said, uh, well, you know, we know that there was three tons of gold that was a consigned commercial shipment. We also know there was approximately equivalent amount carried by the miners themselves uh, in money belts and carpet bags. And let's just suppose, uh, take a what he called a swag, which is scientific wild ass guess, that 10% of that three tons was dust. 
And then he started thinking of just 10% of it, which would be what, uh, three tons, it would be 6,600 pounds, 600 pounds. He started figuring out how much, how much a, a, a piece of gold dust, one dust, I guess you call it, would be, uh, how long that would be, and then how many would occupy a cubic centimeter, and how much a cubic centimeter of gold would weigh, and then we divided that into the number of pounds there and multiplied that times the number of little tiny flakes in that cubic centimeter. And he came up with some reasonable figure. It was one, one part per billion or 10 million or whatever it was. And he thought that reasonably you might find in a sampling of sediment a little bit of gold dust. And the very first time they sent the vehicle down, uh, they, uh, they used to call him Mud Pie because he always wanted to look at the mud, the sediment they were bringing up. They didn't do this uh, purposely, but the vehicle itself would just, uh, as it sat on the bottom, would bring up some of the sediment. And Bob would get it, and he'd scrape it into this little Petri dish and, and dissolve everything but just the, um, dissolve all the mineral, I mean the uh, animal content in it, and then the plankton skeletons, and then just look at what he had left. And early on, he spotted a little, little flake of gold. He had to look at it through a microscope. Since then, he's discovered about 25 pounds of gold just by panning for gold in the sediment around the Central America. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural, real food ingredients. All layered products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel. And he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be True Crime 
XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Love Body Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma- major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. 
our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing, not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Excess. You can also use the code True Crime Excess at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime XS.